Jeff Johnson explicitly says Actus Purus is not the God of the Bible. You deny pure actuality in God, and you put motion in God, which is denied by every Puritan I could think of, then you are departing from Reformed Orthodoxy. And you're not only departing from Reformed Orthodoxy, you're departing from Christian Orthodoxy on that point. You can't have it both ways. And and then, you know, I say that, and people take offense, and then... And then they play the victim card. Oh, you know, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't be that uncharitable. You shouldn't be that disrespectful or that arrogant. I'm I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm just saying that this is this is what has been taught. And it's not just been taught by Thomas. It's been taught by the chorus of the saints. And I think it's strongly defended by the scriptures themselves. And it's a logical necessity. It's a logical necessity. It can't be any other way. Okay, so, and that's your natural revelation, natural theology piece didn't have to go that direction and this guy didn't have to go that direction that guy didn't have to and all of a sudden it's oh no unless you adopt this understanding which in some formulations honestly i i just have to honestly say in some formulations makes it difficult to even begin to explain how the father and the son can love one another and speak to one another there are some formulations of Thomistic metaphysics to where the persons of the Trinity actually start sounding much less like persons, like the Son saying, glorify me with the Father, the glory that I had with you before the world was, and switching that over honestly to the great spirit emanating thoughts. And then loving that thought and that kind of stuff. It's like, I'll take the Hebrew prophets as the foundation. As the foundation. He's referring to an analogy that, that Thomas used to, to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, um, but not in say or not ad intra. Um, so there's, there, are, there, there are a few there are a few things here. He he started off by saying it, you know, it didn't used to be like this guy had to go this particular way or this guy had to go that particular way. Yeah, but if you're a, if you were a professing Christian during the time of the Reformation and you said what Jeff Johnson has said in his book, you would be anathematized. You would be anathematized without question. This is without question. And I'm talking about Calvin I'm talking about Knox. If you were, if you wrote that about God in the 16th century, you would be put out of the church if you did not repent. And maybe worse, given some governmental situations at that point, which I obviously don't advocate for. I'm a Baptist. But there would be discipline. There would be disciplinary action. Almost across the board. Unless you, you belong to some kind of like, you know, sect you know, that was out in the middle of nowhere and untouched by, you know, uh, politics of the time. Move up to the post-reformed and the Puritans, and there would be discipline. There would be discipline. You could not write what is in that book in the 17th century without facing some kind of ecclesiastical discipline. Um, so, yeah, you had to believe a certain way. You had to believe Christian theology proper. Um, and it wasn't just, you know, 
up to opinion. It wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, I I found something new in Scripture, and I'm, I'm the guy who's going to point it out to everyone now, here in the 21st century, after 2,000 years of church history are behind us. And they've said with one voice the complete opposite of what I'm putting in my book. What, a, what an arrogant position to put yourself in. The other thing is, 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 is he's, he's, you know, he's talking about here. I want, actually what I want to do here is I just want to go and just barely. Us like persons, like the son saying, glorify me with the father, the glory that I had with you. Right. So, so he talked about on, on some formulations of Thomistic metaphysics. And I, by that, I think he means the Thomistic doctrine of God. I can't understand how the person of the Trinity would even talk to each other. I mean, the thing that concerns me here is he's he's talking about things that Jesus said in his human nature. And I think there are incarnational categories being missed here. There are uh, Trinitarian categories being missed here. The way the persons are distinct, distinguished from one another. All of that is being lost in this segment of the video. And that is very concerning to me. Very concerning to me. Uh, and I think one, one of the things that this conversation is illustrating is how great an ignorance there is concerning the doctrine of God. And, and woe is us, right? And I'm included in that. Uh, and and a, a lot of us are, 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 are rekindling this for the very first time. We're reading Charnock. We're reading, you know, Turretin. We're reading Franciscus Junius. We're reading Calvin. We're reading... And and we're coming to drink deeply from a, a a theology proper that is richly orthodox and finds itself within the quote unquote great tradition, which is grounded in the holy scriptures. And it's grounded in logical necessity, coming through nature, revealed through nature. Um and uh you know we and and so woe is us in the sense that you know we're all new at this we're all coming to this uh you know we we've been under a cloud as it were of kantian idealism and a bunch of other rubbish that flowed out of the enlightenment that's made it very difficult to to grasp a right understanding of the doctrine of god it's made it's made it difficult to really grasp the metaphysics assumed by scripture itself if i'm if i'm being totally totally honest here before the world was and switching that over, honestly, to the great spirit emanating thoughts and then loving that thought and that kind of stuff. It's like, I'll take the Hebrew prophets as the foundation, the background, and not that kind of metaphysical. Okay, if I could just... Um... I pull this up momentarily. The the confession. I want to read the confession on God, chapter one or chapter two. Sorry, chapter two, uh, article one. It says this: The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of Himself. That's a saity. Infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. A most pure spirit. He is a spirit. That's what he is, essentially. And uh, 
you know, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only has immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable. By immutable, they would, they would also understand that to mean there's no motion in God, because motion is a, a species of change. Immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, and it goes on. And I also want to read from Scripture the substantive that is uh, used. by John, John 4.24 quotes Jesus saying, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So that's a fundamental substantive reality about God. So in terms of formulating our systematic theology in accordance with what the scripture teaches, how would you, how would you, where would you place that? I'd place it where the confession placed it, to be honest, because it's a fundamental reality about God, and it sits behind the doctrine of the Trinity in terms of how we come to knowledge of the Trinity. It's actually something you can know about God before you know Him personally, before you know Father, Son, and Spirit. It's something you know about God through creation. So, um, you know, where would you place... I mean, the Scriptures teach God is Spirit, right? And... When it uses a substantive like that, it also says God is light. Um, God is life. And it, it, it identifies him with his attributes. It identifies God himself with his attributes. Hence, James Dalzell's book, All That Is In God, and he would say in that book, all that is in God is God. Ergo, divine simplicity. Classical theism. Right? So, you know, what do you do with the biblical data? mumbo jumbo um it also provides them with the needed firepower against our marvelously sick society firepower nominalism pseudo-fundamentalism fideism biblicism and personalism cannot provide i would i don't even know what to say there um it's not Thomas that I'm hearing providing the strongest response to the collapse of Western society. I, I don't hear that at all. And I have read some books from people who try to make those arguments. I found the connections not only tenuous, but indefensible. Highly questionable at their, at their best. Um, but I don't know what he means by fideism. Probably presuppositionism, I assume. I don't know. That's a misnomer, obviously. Duh. Uh, straw man if it is. Biblicism? There's something wrong with biblicism? What? Yes, there's something wrong with biblicism. Um, biblicism, as I understand it, it consistently taken, is uh, it, it requires one to use only biblical language. You cannot use extra-biblical language on biblicism. You, it would render systematic theology impossible. It would render sermons impossible. It would render hymns impossible. It would render creeds unethical. The people who say, no creed but the Bible, 
that's biblicism. Obviously, that's self-defeating because no creed but the Bible is a creed that's not in the Bible. So that's my understanding of biblicism. That's how I was using the term. And yes, fideism I was referring to. Uh, not all presuppositional lists, but what I view to be an implication of Van Til's presuppositionalism, and I think it 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 shows in in um, uh, in this situation here in particular. And the, and the reason why I say that classical theism, classical metaphysics, and classical theism are import are sources of firepower, right, uh, against the sick society that we live in. Because one of the main things that's going on in society is a denial of natures. Natures or essences m determine what things are, fundamentally. Um, it's not. It's not. Scripture obviously seconds the reality in nature that a male is distinct from a female, right? Um, but it, 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 it's, you don't have to read scripture to know that that reality is revealed in creation itself. You can know that through nature, which means there's an explanation as to why that's the case. Ultimately, that's God and how he chose to create the world. But, uh, but secondarily that that's the objective existence of natures. Natures determine what a particular thing is right if i if i had a different nature i would not be a human being i wouldn't be josh i wouldn't be who i am today i'd have a different nature i would be a sheep or a goat or a dog or or whatever nature it was that i had and um so nature's objective natures and this all goes back to classical metaphysics the objectivity of natures or essences is realism uh it it it's either extreme realism or moderate realism that has traditionally taught, again, observing just what nature has provided uh, according to to uh, to God's design of it. Um, it is realism teaches that that things are what they are in virtue of their formal cause or or their essence, right? So a thing participates the the essence that a thing participates in is is what it is. Um, so if I didn't participate in humanness then I would not be human. I would be something else. Um, and, and the essence or the nature of humanness uh, exists regardless of whether or not I exist as a particular human being. It's something that's objective. So um, that's what's going on in society today. Nominalism started questioning the existence of natures, at least as uh, of natures that objectively exist. And nominalism began to say, and Luther actually came up in the alchemist, school so he would have assumed a great deal of nominalism and and the idea though is is that natures don't make things what they are we make things what they are so the reason a chair is a chair is because we call it we nominate it a chair or the reason a lion is a lion is because we nominate it a lion and the realist would say no the christian realist would say no um a lion is what it is because of what God designed it to be uh, because of the nature that God has given it. And what you, and, and then I, I would just to, to bring up a corollary, what you believe about natures will play in heavily to what you believe about the incarnation of Jesus Christ of the son. So, um, you know, the, 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 the run of the mill articulation of the incarnation is that the person of the son took into union with himself, the fullness of a human nature. And thus there are two natures, divine and human united in the one person. So we have to understand what natures are 
in order to talk about the incarnation even. Um, and this goes back to my comments on classical theism, classical metaphysics. And personalism. It does seem that there's a lot of uh, really specific language that uh, you have to buy into here. Uh, personalism is just just to define that that is a n novel term the concept's not novel but the term is novel but I think it's a helpful term to describe an old concept um, there was this thing that preceded um, this 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 way of thinking about God called social Trinitarianism where it it thinks of of the persons of the Trinity as a collection or a community of persons um, and and it kind of it, it humanizes them, so to speak, such that uh, the way they interact with each other is just like a, a society of human persons might interact with each other. Um, and, uh, you know, along with that, coexisting with that is, is personalism or mutualism, which, you know, John authors like John Frame, K. Scott Oliphant, and others have made efforts to uh, to make God more relatable to us. And the way they've gone about doing that is by projecting things which are only proper to the human nature onto the divine nature. And that's what personalism at the very baseline understanding of it indicates, is that this is, this is an effort to personalize God, not in terms of personal salvation. That's not the, it's a different way of using the term. But it's a way of... of introducing God into a give-and-take relationship uh, and a mutable a, a relationship that would require God to take on a nature of mutability in order to interact with his creation. It, it makes God more like us so that we can understand our relationship to the divine better. And in doing that, it, it makes a grave mistake. It, it, it takes creaturely categories and, and, and imposes them upon the divine essence. And it's, it uses creaturely words to describe God, which is not a problem in and of itself, but it uses them in a univocal fashion. That is, they're using words to talk about God as if he's just a, another greater kind of man or greater kind of creature other than ourselves. And we would say, no, that all, all language is analogical concerning God. That means it's, it's, it's not univocally describing who God is. It's not comprehending the divine essence. It's, it's approximating God. It's... um. It's, uh, it's, uh, anyway, that, that would be a whole other, other podcast we could get into. Anyways, no one is obsessed with Thomas in my estimation. I disagree. The resurgence of, the resurgence of, name the names. Who is it? Name the names. And, uh, and I'll name them right along with you because I wouldn't want anyone to be obsessed with Thomas. Thomism is indicative of an intellectual revival taking place in a country in which many can't tell male from female. This is a revival, quote-unquote, taking place, not in a country, but amongst Reformed evangelicals. And we all still know male and female. And I cannot see how anyone can argue that you have to have Thomas's metaphysics to affirm that Jesus said from the beginning, God made the male, male and female. And, and if you can actually get to the point of saying, yes, but you need to have Thomas to be able to understand how Jesus said that, I'm going, that's what I mean by idolizing Thomas. 
because I can believe that and I don't need Thomas at all. That was true. By the way, Matthew 19 was true long before Thomas came. Again, you know, the way I'm using the word Thomas or Thomism there in that in that post, you know, I've already commented on, on the way I'm using terminology here. It's it's no different than the way a Calvinist uses the term Calvinism. So um but uh, but even more than that, um it is there is a a revival of classical Christian theism happening. Uh it's happening on a small scale. Um I mean, relatively speaking, obviously even a Christian revival in general is happening on a very small scale, relatively speaking. I mean, look at our country, look at the world. Um, so you know, I'm not I'm not making a claim as to you know the uh, uh, the the scale or the magnitude of of such a revival, but there has been a resourcement, a rekindling um, of of classical theism. It's it's leading to an intellectual revival. Christians are discovering this laity, discovering this. And, and just discovering the basic categories. Um, again, bringing this back to the incarnation, natures. What is a nature? You know, you hear it taught all the time in theology courses and, and in Sunday schools. You know, Jesus is one person with two natures. What is a nature? All right, that, that, again, that goes back to classical metaphysics. Uh, and, and scripture and the orthodox creeds and confessions uh, assume that metaphysics which God obviously engendered, or, or not, which God obviously uh, made the DNA of this world. I mean, it's, it's, it's the reality of creation. Um, and Scripture assumes it. And any Orthodox creed or confession assumes it when it comes to, you know, the question of what is a nature. Very important we understand that. And there's no particular place in Scripture that says, here is what a nature is, right? Yet it is that term, nature, and a particular understanding of that term and what it means that has helped us articulate a doctrine of the Trinity. And that is classical metaphysics that sits behind that. And it's helped us not only talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, but also the, the doctrine of the Incarnation, I would mention as well. And, and we did find Largely because of a bygone but gradual rejection of Thomas's metaphysics, which evidently is the foundation for everything. And books like Jeff's, this is Jeffrey Johnson's book, um, which I forgot to bring with me. Jeffrey Johnson, can't keep up. Why? Bombastic antics of its type will never satiate now this is this this line <sighs> bombastic antics of its type will never satiate the intelligence of honest christians seeking robust theological answers to the big questions that's obsession with thomas that's what it looks like that, i've seen it Okay. So I've already explained, you know, the whole obsession with Thomas thing away. You guys know the way I'm using the term. I've, I don't know any other way to, to explain that. And I'm not going to address that kind of a claim anyway <clears throat> here. But let me be very clear about something. 
I called Johnson's book bombastic. I I implied that it set forth certain antics. Because in my estimation, and I'm conscience bound, I would go to the mat, I would die for this. I would go to the stake for this. It is tinkering with the orthodox doctrine of God. When you put mutability or motion in the divine essence, you have denied a Christian theology proper. Not just a Reformed theology proper, not just a Thomistic theology proper, a Christian theology proper. If you have problems with that claim, then explain why it's false. Marshal the evidence, like I've attempted to do in several different places. Not only here, but in my, re my three-part review of Jeff Johnson's book. I spent hours on that review. I, I Some mornings working on that until 4 a.m. Because I don't have time during the day. So, marshal the evidence. Um, I don't think you'll be successful. In fact, I know you won't. It is a rejection of creedal, confessional, Christian theology proper. And I take that very seriously. And it offends me at a personal and pastoral level. Because, again, I think it's heterodox. And I have theologically thirsty members of my congregation who I will guard tooth and nail from this stuff. It's that serious. This is more serious than Scripture, our view of Scripture, because this will ultimately determine who God is determines what Scripture is. This is more serious than Molinism. Yeah, I said, I, I did say this is more serious than Molinism, although in some ways it's, it's on par with it. But what we believe about soteriology, the location of the decrees, the, the, the nature of the decrees and all that, that's all driven by a theology proper. So theology proper is m more basic than those things. God used to, the, William Perkins, when he begins his, his uh, golden chain, he says, there are two things to know. God, God's will. God, God's will. If you get God wrong, you're not going to get the will right. You're not going to get the will right. Both of those things must be known, and they must be known truly, if you're going to do theology right. And you may be inconsistent, right? Like Dr. Dr. James White said, says, I don't need this stuff to, 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 to know what male and female are. Well, of course not. I mean, you can be inconsistent, right? You could be a, a nominalist. Uh, you could be a subjectivist and say, this is what male and female are, because you could be inconsistent. But I'm saying this gives the metaphysical explanation as to what male and female are fundamentally and naturally. And you, you, that must be in place first in our line of reasoning, in our line of thinking. 
if you want your movement, whatever movement you're involved in these days, against the CRT stuff, the wickedness of you know egalitarianism, the wickedness of, of critical race theory and social justice, if you want your response to that to live into the future beyond one or two generations, you need to be teaching God, the nature of God, the existence and attributes of God. Just get Stephen Charnock, teach out of that. Just get Stephen Charnock, teach out of that, and um, and and you'll be all right. He's a Puritan. He's not a Roman Catholic. Unless you want to say that he's a Roman Catholic sympathizer, which I wouldn't doubt will at some point be said. Who knows? For decades. I've seen it for de- I've heard it. I've sat with people. That's what it looked and no one who has it seems to know that. But we are the intelligent and honest Christians, and we are seeking robust theological answers to the big questions, and we'll only find it in the great doctor of the Roman Catholic Church, Thomas More. Um, praise God for thoughtful men who are striving to be consistent in the fight. Rather than making hash of the divine essence, Johnson, Poitras, Strawn, et al. So if you don't do Thomas's doctrine of simplicity and take it where he took it, then you are making hash of the divine essence. I'm sorry, gentlemen, I have no respect for that. You can just stop it. You can just stop it. It's untrue. It's false. All you're doing is saying, well, from our perspective, inevitably you'd have to do this. And you've just gotten so caught up. No, it's it's not just from our perspective. This is demonstrated. This has been demonstrated. Um, it is it is objective fact. This is not just a perspectival thing. You cannot put motion in God and then go out the other side of your mouth and affirm mutability or immutability. Sorry. Um, there's this little thing called the law of identity and the law of non-contradiction formal laws of logic that if you reject, nothing is intelligible whatsoever. You must assume those things and play by those rules. Nothing that James White says is makes any sense without those assumptions. 